All right, well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at church. And uh, we're in week two of money. Who's excited about a second week of talking about money? That's what I like to hear. Um, we, uh, we are in week two out of three. So if this is too much for you already, <laughs> strap in. You've got another week coming. Uh, but you won't be hearing from me next week. Chris, who's one of the elders at the church here, will be speaking next week. So look forward to that. It's going to be a great way to round out this series uh, called Free, which is on money, stewardship, uh, and freedom. And, uh, and this week, we're looking at what it means to be a steward. And that may be a word that you're not familiar with, and that's fine. We, we've deliberately chosen a word that you don't hear very often, uh, because it has a unique meaning and a unique biblical meaning. But the reason it's important that we understand what it means to be stewards, that money is not ours but belongs to God, is because money is something that needs to be handled very carefully. It's not something that we intuitively think that we need to handle carefully. Nobody tends to think that getting more money would be a dangerous thing, and yet it's, it's as obvious as the nose on our faces that it is. I was reading a book recently on an unrelated topic, and he was talking about the day that he came home, and he remembers it, he says, just as clear as the day it happened. He remembers the day that he came home and opened the, the house, opened the front door of the house, and in there his whole family was there. So kind of cousins and uncles were there, and his grandparents were in the middle of the room, and everyone kind of looked at him as he came in the door, and he started to wonder what was going on. Was it his birthday and he'd somehow forgotten? Why was everybody here? But the news that they were kind of celebrating, the reason they, they looked at him is because everybody knew except for him that his grandparents had just won the lotto. So they'd run somewhere north of one and a half million dollars, and the family were just ecstatic. And he was saying what followed next was actually pretty incredible. Debts got paid, you know, college funds got set up, um, people sort of started to, to, to start investment sort of portfolios. So in terms of the, the net wealth of the family, things just got this huge injection. But he says what was even more extraordinary was what happened after that. He said that injection of funds basically destroyed his family. It destroyed the marriage of his grandparents. It tore the family apart with greed and jealousy. It, it basically ruined their family. It was a, 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 like a bomb went off in terms of the relationships, and they never fully recovered from it. I mean, that's an incredible thing to think about, isn't it? That a windfall would actually take you backwards rather than forwards as a family. That actually getting more money could be more destructive rather than constructive. But it's an obvious truth that we know and know well. You'll even find it in kids' books. I've been reading through the How to Train Your Dragon series with our, with our kids, with Asher in particular, our oldest. And um, if you, there are no spoilers here. The books are completely different to the movies, just in case you're worried about that, which I'm sure you are. <laughs> but um, in, in one of the books, they're, they're, the story is that they're Vikings and they, are, they kind of have dragons that they train and ride and all this kind of stuff. Um, but in one of the books, they're looking for this treasure that belonged to, to the main character, Hiccup, his great-great-grandfather, called Grimbeard. And they're looking for his treasure, looking for it. They end up finding what they think is the real treasure, and it's in like a, a little treasure trove, and they sort of end up losing it. And through kind of a series of circumstances, Hiccup, the true heir to this treasure, actually finds the real treasure, and it's buried deep in kind of a, an underground cave, and it is enormous. It's not just kind of one treasure trove. It's like an epic treasure. And when he finds it, he reads a letter from his great-great-grandfather who tells him that the reason he buried it was because it tore the tribe apart. And he, he writes this line that sticks at the end of the book. 
He says, I dream of a time in the future where men will be able to, to own such beautiful and dangerous things and use them wisely. And that becomes the refrain of this book. And Hiccup decides that the wisest thing to do with this treasure is to leave it buried and to let nobody know about it. It's funny. Money, riches, wealth can be a beautiful and dangerous thing, and yet very few of us know how to handle it wisely. That's wisdom from a kid's book. But the Bible has even more to say on this about how we're to handle this beautiful and dangerous stuff. That we are called, biblically, to be stewards. That is, to see this stuff not as our own, but as belonging entirely to God. And the way that we are to handle these things is the way that He would have us handle them. And so I'm going to pray that as we dig into His Word, as we look at various passages through Scripture, that we'd see the fullness of what the Bible has to say about what it means to be a follower of Christ and one who is a steward of this wealth, that you might handle beautiful and dangerous things wisely. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a God who is wise, that you are the one who knows all things, that you know our hearts and the human heart and our propensity to greed. And we pray that we would trust not in ourselves and lean not on our own understanding, but lean on your understanding when it comes to handling wealth that we would know that you are the one who owns all things, that there is nothing on heaven and earth that you have not made and that does not belong to you and owe you glory, and that wisdom means handling these things in the way that you desire. And so, Father, we pray that we wouldn't just hear these words and walk away unchanged, but that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit to be new people who handle these things for the glory of your name. Amen. When it comes to handling things wisely in Scripture... If you are familiar with the Bible, you'll probably know where we're going. We're going to the book of Proverbs. It was written, most of it was written uh, by King Solomon, who was considered to be the wisest king in Israel's history. And it's full of short, kind of pithy sayings that, that cover a, a range of things, from money to relationships uh, to health to all kinds of things. And it's how to handle yourself in a manner that is wise in the world. And in, in chapter 3, which kind of forms the, the prologue or the intro to the book, we get like one, one kind of long connected speech. It's almost like a father talking to a son, trying to give him wisdom. And in that section, we read this bit that, that Kirily read out before. In, in Proverbs 3, 5 to 10, we read this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The first principle that he outlines here is that you're to trust the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Now, interestingly, it doesn't say here don't use your own understanding. God has given his people a mind to use and to think through things, but he says don't lean on your own understanding. Don't treat your understanding or your understanding of things as the most reliable source of wisdom in the universe. And he says trust the Lord instead with all your heart. So what it means is that you're inclined to say, look, just because something feels right doesn't necessarily mean that it is right. That actually because I feel like doing something may not be the most reliable way of approaching it. The way that I approach things is I say, what does God have to say about these things? What is God telling us to do? 
And so here it says that wisdom, when it comes specifically, it turns almost straight away to money. It talks about this general thing about um, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths. And then it goes straight to money. And why? Well, if you were with us last week, you'll know that Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know where your heart is, whether your heart trusts the Lord completely? Work out what you do with your money. And so here the author says, all right, lean not on your understanding, trust the Lord with all your heart. And so that means first and foremost, when it comes to money, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits. Now, what is this talking about? These are a lot of unfamiliar terms, perhaps, to, to sort of, you know, uh, modern living in Sydney. Well, the first fruits in the Old Testament was when you, when you had, it's an agricultural term, when you had a crop, the, when the, you've kind of had the season of sowing, and then as you start to reap the fruits as they come in, the first fruits are literally the first fruits that present themselves. As, as your crop sort of comes in, the very first thing you get are the first fruits. And so in the Old Testament, we're told that, uh, that Israel, when they entered the land that God gave to them, they didn't earn it themselves, they didn't lift themselves up by their own bootstraps, they weren't a mighty nation who just dominated. God gave them a land, and he says, as soon as you get in there, the first thing you do is, when the first fruits come in, you're to take a tenth of those to the temple, and you're to give them away. And that, that tenth of everyone's sort of first fruits was to be given to the Levites, who were a tribe of Israel who had no land, so they could generate no income. Their work was just to serve the Lord at the temple. And so this, this tenth of the first fruits would go to the Levites, it would go to the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. And God set this in stone from the start, that there would be 10% that would go away straight away. And this was meant to teach them to honor God with their wealth. Because giving away from the first fruits did a couple of things. The first thing it told them was that they were stewards and not owners. They were stewards and not owners. See, a steward, if you're not familiar with that term, which is fair enough, nobody talks about stewards. In fact, half the time you might have, you might have been thinking, where is this steward guy? I keep waiting for him to show up. Steward means someone who manages a, a, an asset on behalf of somebody else. They don't own it. They're managing it on behalf of someone else. So they use it in the way that the owner wants it used. And giving away from the first fruits, having 10% that they gave away straight away, showed Israel that they weren't owners. Stuff didn't really belong to them. It belonged to God, and they were to use it how God wanted them to. You think about it like this. If you walked into a shop, and you, bought, you buy a coffee, and you start drinking it so it's too late to give it back, and then you, um, you say, oh, I'm, I'm short on cash, and you see them open the cash register to kind of take your money, and you're like, hey, look, you've got plenty going on. How about just shouting me the coffee? How would the, how would the shop assistant respond to that? Other than sighing or whatever. Like they, they, if you were just to have a literal conversation, they would take you seriously. They would say, well, this isn't actually my money. It belongs to the owner of the shop. Like, I didn't kind of earn it or whatever. And you could be like, if you really wanted to push it, you could be like, well, you're the one putting in all the... Like, I didn't see the owner around here. Like, you're the one putting in all the hours and you made the coffee. So, you know, you could probably shout me this coffee, right? And I would say, well, actually, it's not my business. I didn't lay out the startup capital. I, I don't own it. I didn't start the business or anything like that. I get a portion of it that I get to use for myself, but I can't use all of this however I want. Right? Without saying anything, that's how we understand the relationship that they have to that money. That's what a steward is. You have this money to use, but it's not yours. You're using it on behalf of someone else. So you're not free to use it any way that you please. 
And this idea of the first fruits in the Old Testament was wisdom for Israel because it was a habit that they did year in and year out where every time they did it, when they presented the first fruits, they would have to retell the story of how God saved them out of slavery in Egypt, how he brought them into this land. There was a whole ritual to it so that they would remember, that's right, we don't own this stuff. God gave it to us. And so when he says to give this portion of it away, we give it away. And they do it freely. That was the first thing it taught them, was that they were stewards, that they didn't own it. But the second thing it taught them was to trust the Lord with all their heart. See, why is it that God said to them, give out of the first fruits? So they're farmers, they're tilling the land, the first fruits come in, or you know, the first set of calves or whatever are born, and they have to give out of that. Why does that teach them to trust the Lord with all their heart? When you give out of the first fruits you're not sure how the rest of the season is going to go. There's no guarantee that later on that the, the season's going to be a bumper season. And so the, the, the portion that they would set apart for God was trusting him, knowing that whatever happened for the rest of the season, it's okay, it's in God's hands, it's his stuff, he's going to take care of us. They gave it away, trusting that God was fully and completely in control and that it was his stuff to, be done, to, to enact his will. And so this was the pattern that was set up in Israel. This was how they were meant to treat the wealth that they enjoyed in the land that God had given them. But what we see as the Old Testament rolls on is that time after time after time, they break it. And they break it again and again. And God sends prophets to Israel to warn them that they're breaking it and that judgment is coming. And in Malachi 1, we see one of these warnings. In Malachi 1, 6 to 8, God sends this warning to his people. He says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of the hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? See, by this time in Israel's history, they no longer had any love for the Lord. There wasn't a heart to trust him completely. And so what would happen is when they were, when they were sacrificing, they, instead of sacrificing the best, they were meant to sacrifice an unblemished lamb. They were just offering up whatever was about to die. The stuff that was about to get thrown in the trash anyway, that's what they offered up as a sacrifice. And God says to them, he's like, if I'm a father, where's my honor? Wisdom with wealth means to honor the Lord with your first fruits. And here, they're not giving from the first fruits, they're giving from the absolute leftovers. And God warns them, he says, look, you, you offer up the, the blind lamb that you're about to put down anyway. You offer up the sick and the lame. Where is, my, where is the honor in that? He even says in it, I wish you would stop doing it. He says, I wish you wouldn't do anything. I wish you would stop sacrificing completely. It's worse to do what you're doing than to simply do nothing. And why? Well, think about it like this. If you were to give someone a present, and it was their birthday, and you just, you just went to your bin, and you just wrapped up the trash and gave it to them, like your absolute left, the, very last, the stuff that's about to go out to waste forever, if you wrapped that up and gave it to them, what would they think? They would think like, what have I done? Like, did I run over your cat or something? I mean, which 
you shouldn't have a cat anyway because they're terrible, <laughs> terrible pets. But, um, but you get the example, right? Like, if, if you did that, it would actually be seen as some kind of a, like a deliberate insult or almost an act of aggression. To wrap up trash and give it to someone would be like, why would you, why would you do that to me? You would be way better off to give nothing, wouldn't you? Because then they might be like, oh, maybe they forgot or whatever it was. But to actually go and give them trash would be aggressive. And God is saying here, you guys are sacrificing trash to me. You are actually, you are, it is a physical ritual of insult to come and do this. He says, I wish you would stop. I wish you'd shut the temple doors and you'd close it up forever and not do this. We're called to honor God with the first fruits. And it's a warning there that actually if the way that we give when it comes to our wealth is just leftovers, it might be better not to do anything that we might be deceiving ourselves that we're giving up something that honors God when in fact it's dishonoring to Him. Because God goes on in Malachi 3, 6, 8, He picks on the, on the tithe in particular uh, that, they, that Israel were called to do. And He says in, this, in uh, Malachi 3, 6 to 8, He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man, rob, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. How is it that they are robbing God? Where is God's storehouses that you could break into it and steal stuff from them? And yet God is saying to these people, he's like, you made a covenant with me. And part of that was to obey my commands. And I called you to honor me with your first fruits and to give this tithe offering to the Levites, to the poor, the widows, the fatherless, the foreigner. And you're keeping it for yourself. He says, that is my stuff that you're holding on to. You are robbing God. They were acting as if they were owners instead of stewards. And God says, repent of that. That is not your stuff. You are not called to use it however you please. If you belong to God, you know that everything you have belongs to Him and you are just a steward called to use it the way that He has asked you to do that. See, we ourselves are stewards. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, everything you have is given to you by God. No one, no one here from the start, no one here could put their hand up and say, I chose to be born. I chose the circumstances, the time. I'm an organized person. I decided in what country and what economic circumstances I was going to be born. I decided what giftings I would have and what kind of family background I would have in order to nurture those giftings. I decided what time in world history I would be born and what kind of education system I'd be brought up with so that I could generate wealth for myself. I did it all. I did it. Thank you very much. No one can say that because the truth is it's God who determined those things. And more than that, if you're a follower of Jesus, it also means that you sinned against God, rebelled against Him, walked away from Him. And Romans 5.8 says that while you were an enemy of Jesus, He came and died for you. When you would not choose God and could not even if you wanted to, He intervened and sent Jesus to die on your behalf and sent His Spirit into your heart that you might have faith in Jesus, that you would trust in Him. Everything we have is, to, is from God. And so in the Old Testament, it meant that they were stewards and they had this ritual attached to it, which was tithing and first fruits. But what about the New Testament? How does Jesus change the way that we relate to our wealth? We don't have a temple that we can walk down the street and give to. 
We don't have a specific command on tithe, and if we could, we wouldn't have the same ritual attached to it. So, so what do we do? In the New Testament, how does Jesus transform how we look at wealth? Well, let's have a look at one interaction that he has with a very rich man. In Luke 19... Uh, we read the story of Jesus meeting a tax collector called Zacchaeus. Now this is a, at, a, at a crucial point in the Gospel of Luke um, where Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. So he's very much heading towards his death and he knows it. And his interactions are getting more and more significant. Uh, and the theme of riches, if you've read the books of Luke, Luke and Acts, who are written by the same author, the theme of money and salvation are very closely tied together. And so we, we see what happens here when Jesus interacts with this tax collector. Look at what it says in Luke 19, 1-4. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who, was, uh, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. Which is a very kind way of saying he's shorty short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So we're told two things about this man Zacchaeus. One is that he's very, very rich. So it says that he's a chief tax collector, which anyone reading at that time would have gone, yep, he's rich. And just to clarify, it says, and he was rich. So just to, just to be sure, this guy is rich. That's one thing we know about him. The other thing we know about him is that he is short. And you're like, that's an interesting, like, I don't know why Luke chose to make such a thing of that. But I guess it's important to the story because we see here that he wants to see Jesus. He doesn't know much about him. He's trying to work out who this Jesus is. And he wants to see him, but he's short, so he heads up a tree. Now, immediately you think, well, of course he does. He's short. There's a crowd there. What's the only way to see someone? You've got to climb somewhere high. But there's actually something more significant kind of going on here. If he was just short and wanted to see Jesus and people liked him, he could ask people to move aside so he could make his way to the front of the crowd and see Jesus. The reason he climbs up a tree is because nobody likes chief tax collectors. He's short. Yeah, that's one reason why he has to do it. But he also is not willing to ask anyone to move aside because no one would because a tax collector was the scum of the earth. They were considered traitors to their own race of people because they worked for the occupying Romans and they collected taxes for them, which doesn't sound that bad yet. You're like, look, someone's got to do it. But the truth is that tax collectors then didn't just take what was kind of stipulated by their Roman authorities. They took extra on top of that. They extorted their own people. They were basically shakedown artists. And so what it would mean was people knew that these people were rich because they took from their own people. And they would use Roman force in order to do it. They were despised. And so, yes, he's short. That's why he can't see Jesus. But he climbs up a tree because no one is going to let a tax collector through. He's rich, but he's an outcast. And that's interesting to think about. If you were with us last week, we looked at how money taps into our deepest fears and promises to, make, to, to solve them. And here is a man who obviously thought, obviously thought being rich, no matter what he did morally to get there, was worth it because he would be an insider, and yet here he is, an outcast, not even able to ask people to move aside so that he can see a man walking down the street. And so we have this outcast in a tree, and in Luke 19, 5-7, we pick up the story with Jesus interacting with him. And in sentence 5, it says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Jesus walks past him, sees this guy up a tree, and says, come down here, little guy. You know, like that sort of thing. Get out, get out here, right? And straight away, Zacchaeus does. But more significant than that is Jesus says, I'm going to go to your place and eat. So that's, that is more significant than just interacting in the street. To go into someone's house is an act of fellowship. So it's like they're your friend. Now, Jesus is meant to be a religious teacher and a rabbi, and so everyone looking at him is like, Jesus, you're going you're gonna to go and hang out with a sinner, a tax collector like that? How could you do that? And this tells us a couple of things. One is that Jesus didn't really care what the people said about him or around him. He was there to do his Father's will. But secondly is this, that even rich people deserve compassion. That's interesting to think about. The truth is that all of us are sinners and facing the judgment of God forever without Jesus then everyone deserves compassion who does not have the salvation of Jesus, who has not trusted in him. Jesus has mercy on the poor and needy, the immoral, the outcasts, the prostitutes, and the rich. He has compassion. And so he says to this man, I'm going I'm to go to your house and I'm going to eat. And Zacchaeus understands what is going on. He, he, for the first time, understands that this is not just a man, that this is Jesus, God himself, walking on earth. And look what happens in Luke 19, 8 to 10. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When he encounters Jesus, he realizes that he is a sinner and an outcast, and that God has reached out to him and saved him. And when he responds, notice that he doesn't start by saying, Jesus, if, I, if you come over to my house, I'll give away half of my stuff. I'll, I'll pay everyone back fourfold. No, 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 it's only after Jesus initiates with him. So this is grace. It's after God initiates with him. And he says, you're an outcast. Your rich man is trusted in riches for everything you believe. And instead, I'm going to show you the way of life. And he says, come down, I'm going to eat with you today. And Zacchaeus is completely changed. He trusts in Jesus. And his life is turned around completely. I mean, isn't that how grace changes us? That while none of us were really seeking after God, he sought after us. That while none of us deserved salvation, he sent his son to die on our behalf. See, at this point, Zacchaeus knows that he's the Lord and is trusted in him because Jesus says salvation has come to this house today. He confirms that this is what has happened. This guy has gone from death to life. But at this point, he has no idea how far Jesus is about to go in order to save his life. At this point, he thinks that Jesus is just willing to sacrifice his reputation to be with Zacchaeus. But he will see as the story goes on that Jesus was willing to sacrifice more than that. He sacrificed his very life. He laid down his life for sinners like you and me, for rich people like Zacchaeus, and for outcasts. And when this happens, it changes us completely. When we, are, when we have generosity poured into us, it leads us to want to be generous. Zacchaeus doesn't do good things and then get saved. Jesus initiates with him, saves him, and out of, out of just overwhelming response, he's like, there's this outpouring of generosity. 
I mean, you saw what he said. He says to, God, he says to Jesus, look. He's almost like a little kid. You know how when little kids are proud of stuff they've done? They're like, look at my drawing. You're like, what is that? But they're so chuffed that they did it that they want you to see it. And he's saying to Jesus, like he's almost so overwhelmed. He's like a kid. He's like, look, uh, this is what I'm going to do. I've got a plan. He's like, look, um, I'm going to pay back anyone I've defrauded uh, and I'm going to give them fourfold. Now, in the Old Testament, the stipulation was if you defrauded someone, you had to pay it back and plus 20%. And he's gone way over the top for that. The giving to the poor was part of the tithe, the 10%. But here, he's gone 50%. He's gone way over the top. As he's encountered true grace, it leads him to go way over the top. Because the truth is that the grace of God is extravagant and over the top. And it leads to extravagant and over the top responses, doesn't it? Here, he's encountered the grace of God and it's changed him. The first area it impacts was the area that he had trusted in so deeply before. It's lost all of its power all of a sudden. And he's like, this stuff means nothing to me. I have Jesus now. Lord, I'll give it away. Grace transforms us. And so as stewards, we're to remember that our stuff is not our own, that our wealth is to honor God with, and we're to remember the grace of the gospel leads to extravagant responses. So what do we do with this? Getting practical on this, what are we to do? The first would be this. Notice that Zacchaeus comes up with a plan and states it publicly, publicly enough that Luke, who wrote the gospel and wasn't there, was able to record it and write it down. So he didn't just say, Jesus, I'm going to be really generous from now on. Uh, let's not get into the details of it, like I can sort of fill you in later, but it's going to be, you're going to be blown away. He, he lays out there exactly what he's going to do. If we're to be good stewards of things, it's going to mean setting a budget. Now that sounds like, I mean, we've just talked about things like, you know, going from life to death and all this, how to go to something as ordinary as a budget. But a budget is a careful and planned response to the grace of God, isn't it? So I've heard someone say that driving, what is it, uh, spending without a budget is like driving without a speedo. That like oftentimes, and maybe this is worse for men than it is for women, I'm not sure, but people tend to assume that they're hitting the speed limit when you're basically about to drive through time, right? They're just, you're, you're in the passenger seat, you're just like, oh my gosh, we're about to take off, right? Um, I'm going to meet Marty McFly, if anyone... Yeah, okay, for the two people who like Back to the Future, that's great. Um, but the reason you have a speedo there is so you know exactly how fast you're going. A budget is a way of saying, am I stewarding God's wealth in the way that I think I am? And there's an accountability to it, to yourself or that you can even invite other people into. That it is wise to budget. Like Kirillie was saying, when you borrow someone else's stuff, you tend to treat it more carefully, generally. And so if our wealth is God's, then we're called to treat it carefully. And I would say for myself personally, I wish I were better at budgeting because if so, I would have had more to be generous with. That's the long and the short of it. That to have stewarded God's wealth better would have meant more generosity rather than less. And so we are called to budget. But to budget would mean doing it in such a way that it acknowledges that you're a steward and that the first fruits are to honor God with. Now, one of the questions that often comes up with this is, what do are, what are Christians do with tithing now? In the Old Testament, you had these really kind of set laws where people would tithe the 10%. Then on top of that, they had free will offerings and festivals. And so in some years, it could tip all the way up to sort of 
of their total wealth was kind of being given away. Um, but in the New Testament, there's no, there's no temple to give to. In terms of tithing, it gets mentioned here and there, um, but it's not like a, a clear command like it is in the Old Testament. It's not easy to see how you would fulfill it. But here's something that might be helpful as people think about putting rules on a budget. You do have to choose a number that you are going to give away out of the first fruits of your income. And the reason for it is that as we saw last week, greed is deceptive and it thrives with ambiguity. We all know that not every decision you make about your house, about your car, about your clothes, about your life is not greedy. Isn't that true? It can't be that every single decision is not greedy. But unless you draw a biblical line through it, you will never know when you've crossed it. And so it's wise to put an amount there where you say, once I cross that line, now that's greedy. That is not being a good steward. And Randy Alcorn in the book Treasure Principle says, 10% is an interesting place to start as just a baseline area that you would just give away without thinking. And he says it for this reason. He says, studies over the past two decades indicate that American Christians on average spend between 2 and 3%, oh, sorry, give on average between 2 and 3% of their income. In fact, more than one out of four American Protestants give away no money at all, not even a token $5 a year. A 2013 study found that those who do tithe, so give 10% of their income away, compose only 10 to 25% of the families in church, but they often provide 50 to 80% of the funding. Then he says, isn't it troubling that in this wealthy society, what's, accurate, what's inaccurately called grace-giving amounts to only a fraction of the first covenant standard. Tithing is God's historical method to get his people on the path of giving. In that sense, it can serve as a gateway to the joy of true grace-giving. It's unhealthy to view tithing as a place to stop, but it certainly can be a good place to start. Tithing isn't the ceiling of your giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line, it's the starting blocks. Tithes can launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace-giving. His advice is that as you think about a number, you've got, to, you've got to pick a number from somewhere. You've got to say there's a line, and once I cross it, I'm being a bad steward. And he says, why not start at 10%, given that it's there in the Old Testament, but also that you might have a line that you say, that's my starting block. And of course, the question is, well, isn't that, isn't that legalism? But Jesus' issue with legalism is not that it led to too much generosity, but too little. When he talks, at the one time he talks about tithes, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, you tithe your mint and your cumin like you give away 10% of everything, and yet you neglect mercy and justice and all these other things. He says, you should have done one whilst doing the other. He doesn't rebuke them for tithing. He just says, what you did was, you chose one thing to be obedient in and made that your excuse for disobeying me in all kinds of other areas. That's what legalism is. Legalism sets false boundaries on things and says, if I do this then I've been faithful. And what it usually leads to is less rather than more obedience. That grace teaches us that God is an extravagant God and so we, our response uh, to grace is extravagant generosity. There's another reason it's helpful and it's for this. As you budget and think about things, giving from your first fruits means that it's not the thing that goes. I remember one friend uh, talking to me about a time he was at McDonald's, which is the source of many great illustrations. But anyway, uh, he's at McDonald's and he had like two 
either McFlurries or um, of the ice creams, whatever it was. But he was carrying them on the tray for whatever reason. And so he had one for him and one for his wife. And as he was walking along, he kind of fumbled one and it stacked on the ground. And then so he took the other one, he started eating it, and he said, oh, sorry, your, your ice cream got dropped. <laughs> and, um, and he was there, he was in a program at the time where he was being mentored, and, and his mentor just gent- gently kind of afterwards, he said, um, hey, man, I just wanted to ask you something. How did you know it was your wife's one that dropped? And he's like, oh, I guess I was just kind of looking at that one, and that seemed to be the one, and then the other one fell off, so it was hers. But it was an interesting, you know, he's changed, he's, he's a changed man. But isn't it the case that when it comes to giving, unless you decide what the minimum is that you're going to give away in being generous to the Lord, that it's always the Lord's ice cream that drops, isn't it? That if we leave it to leftovers, if it's not from our first fruits, if you haven't decided, all right, I'm going to set up my budget and I'm going to start with a number and maybe 10% is your floor or whatever it might be for you, but that's a, a wise place to start, you say straight away that goes out. I don't touch it. So that I make sure it's not the Lord's ice cream that always keeps falling over. Because if it's leftover giving, like Israel were doing in Malachi, it's always going to be his one that goes, isn't it? There'll be, there's, there's always stuff we can spend money on. We always can zero our bank accounts to the point where you're like, uh, once it gets to the end of the month, you're like, ah, I guess, I guess the Lord's ice cream's gone again. Maybe next month, and then again and again and again. That's not being a good steward. If we understand that God owns all things, and we're to steward it for him that we are called to give away and so to set aside at the beginning what is it that we're going to give away and wisdom i think would dictate that maybe 10 percent is not a good ceiling but it's a decent floor but it may be the case that you're not able to do this it may be the case that at the moment there are things like family emergencies or medical emergencies that mean that your your income is is gone and there's not much you can do about that or it might be that you're crippled with debt. It's not wise to give away on credit. That is not your money to give away. And so if it's not, maybe wisdom for you would be setting a budget so that year on year or month on month, you can gradually increase your giving. That if you are convicted that you are called to be generous, that it's a matter of joy and joyful generosity, that year by year you'd want to work to that that you're working up a percent each time or whatever it is, that you might be more and more generous year on year. And with this, that you may want to get help. See, it is a matter, if you have not been generous with your finances so far, it is a matter of repenting of. If you have acted as if your money is completely and totally your own to decide with however you please, then according to Scripture, that's sin. That is not ours. We're called to steward this for God's glory. And so the first part would be to repent of that and say, God, I've treated my money as if it's completely my own and I want to change that and I need help to do it. And if you wanted to get help and accountability with that, we're called to be good stewards. But let's say your issue goes the other way. Let's say for you, income is pretty significant and it flows in reasonably heavy. For you, it may be the case that thinking about principles like 10% or all those kind of things are actually way too low. That actually, you know, looking at the track that your career is on, that you're going to be stewarding significant financial assets in the future. And that that it seems at the moment, unless there's some kind of interruption to things, that that will continue to increase over time. 
if that's the case, being a wise steward is going to mean thinking ahead of time what it is that it's wise to hold on to in terms of God's money and what it is that it's wise to give away. Let me give you an example. Have people, have people heard of Andrew Carnegie? Okay. So for one person, uh, <laughs> we get, this illustration will go really deep. But uh, he's, uh, I hadn't heard of him either. Uh, he is apparently one of the richest people who has ever lived. So he died in the early 20th century, but he made his fortune through steel in the U.S., uh, but early on, before his wealth kind of blew up, he actually wrote this little sort of memoir to himself that has, has remained. Uh, and he wrote this. So in 1901, he, just to give you some context, in 1901, he sold his, his steel company for $480 million. So he was just bathing in wealth. But he wrote this before all that have hap- had happened. He said, I propose to take an income no greater than 50000 per annum. Beyond this, uh, I need ever earn... Uh, make no effort to, sorry, beyond this I need ever earn, make no effort to increase my fortune, but spend the surplus each year for benevolent purposes. Man must have no idol, and the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, I'll be careful to choose that life which will be the most elevating in its character. So he decided early on, that he was going to cap his income at 50000 which was significant for those days. But if you know the history of his life, he didn't keep it. As fortune increased, needs increased, and his lifestyle increased with it. Now, he was an incredibly benevolent person. So he ended up giving away what would be, in modern terms, around $70 billion. And yet, he couldn't keep to the resolution that he made himself. Why? Because as our incomes expand, our lifestyle expands to meet it. And unless you decide ahead of time what it is that is greedy and not, inevitably we'll be able to justify greater and greater lifestyle expenses. And so if, if you are in the, the position where you know that things are going to continue to expand for you, would you consider sitting down now with two or three wise people in your life and saying, I'm going to set a cap, or I'm going to set a limit on what I would earn, and over that is to give away for God's purposes in the gospel. Would you even consider that? Even think about it this way in terms of stewardship. If you, if you were to know that your income was going to be capped and anything over that you were going to give away, would you balk at taking a career advancement? If you had a promotion coming up, and of course with that comes extra responsibilities but also extra financial incentives, if you knew that all you were going to earn was to be given away for the gospel, would you still take it? Because that may be a sign of where your heart is and what it's attached to. I don't know what it will be for you, but money is a beautiful and dangerous possession and it needs to be handled wisely. And handling it wisely according to Scripture means honouring the Lord with our first fruits. It means remembering that we are stewards and not owners. And it means remembering the grace of the gospel that Jesus poured out his life on our behalf that we might spend our lives enjoying what he enjoyed, pouring out our lives for others. And so I would urge you this week to do something. Here here are just three things that are going to be worth thinking about doing. The first one is this. If you haven't read anything, if you're really struggling to see yourself as a steward and to see that as a really life-giving, joyful thing, to buy that book, The Treasure Principle, up the back today. 
Now remember, wealth is deceptive. We kind of looked at it last week. Nobody thinks we need to curb our, our greed, and yet all of us do. And so if you're struggling to see yourself as a steward, why not start with that? Just say, just this week, it's a tiny book. It's one of those books that makes you feel really good because there are tiny pages and the text is big and spread out. So you just feel like you're reading like a thousand pages a minute, right? So it's, it's great for that sense, but also there's great uh, theology in there as how to see yourself as a steward and to see your assets in light of eternity and how to steward them for the kingdom. If you haven't done that, to do that. If not that, maybe to, to, to go through the devotional that we posted up on the page. There's 20 days of looking at what Scripture says about how we are stewards. If you're struggling to see yourself as a steward and to see that as really a, a great and joyful thing, and then to see, look what happens when you look into the Scripture and consider who you are in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. And the last one is this. When it comes to a budget, if you haven't made one, if you have no idea where all your stuff is going... Would you resolve to make one before the 26th, which is when we're having a night to help you with budgeting? Um, would you resolve to make one, and if you haven't made one before then, to come to that night? Just as, to put a, a line in the sand where you're like, it, like, we all sit set to make budgets, and then it just rolls on and on and on. It's the most boring thing to do. We don't want to do it. We know it's probably going to lead to some kind of generosity. And we're like, ah, maybe if I just don't look at it. So look, why not put a, a, a date, the 26th, and say before that date, if I haven't done it, I'll come along to that night and get it done. And if you are good at handling things, you've got a budget and you're all across it, would you consider opening the scriptures and revisiting your budget and saying, does this still reflect what it means to be a steward, to be one who has been saved completely by the grace of God? Whatever it is, I would urge you this week, today, before tomorrow, do something. Greed is deceptive. We are called to be stewards according to the grace of the gospel and we are called to honor Christ with our wealth. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a good and loving God. And we praise you that you are Father of all, that you are owner of all, that everything we have belongs to you. That we are called to steward everything we have, whether our talents, our time, our relationships, our words, and even our finances for your glory. And we pray that if there is a sin of greed in our lives, that you would expose it and convict us of it, that we might honor you with our wealth. That our wealth might demonstrate that our treasure is not in this world or of this world, but is you. And that you are the one that we delight to worship and to glorify. And Father, we pray that you would do this, not for our glory, but for yours. That all of this might be for your name's sake and for the expanding of your kingdom on earth. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Amen.